Welcome to the Jim and Mickey Show. I am Jim Garrity, joined by Mickey White. It is the post-Labor Day edition of the Jim and Mickey Show. And Mickey, we got a lot to talk about. Yes, listeners, we know it's been a long time. Real life got in the way. It's like I can almost hear them <laughs> sighing and yelling at their their um in their cars, wherever they're jogging, etc. Because as you know, listeners, we have been on a bit of a hiatus, but it's because we've had so much going on this summer, some great things on both sides for Jim and I and uh, stuff. Some of it we'll be able to share with you throughout uh, the upcoming shows and whatnot, but I have missed the Jim and Mickey show, more affectionately known as T-Jams, very much, and I have missed you guys, the listeners. So, you know, I understand that you're upset, and we actually appreciate it when you miss us, so it mm -hmm. makes us feel good, right? And, you know, look, on, on people can see the formulation of the show on Twitter, um, including most recently when you watched the Netflix Dave Chappelle special, Sticks and Stones. Yes. Uh, and I was like, you know what? We're, we're talking about that on the next show. Because I don't know about you, but I, I haven't seen any comedy special by a comedian generate more discussion, more furious denunciations, more uh, roaring applause from some very un, un, you know, unusual corners. Um, seems like everybody's got thoughts on it. So what are yours? Mine are, um, I guess the best way to put it is that Dave Chappelle is the funniest man on the planet and is also apparently the hero that we needed right now. <laughs> He's not the hero we wanted. He's the hero we need. Correct. Mm -hmm. uh, I had no idea that people were going to respond as strongly as they did. I mean, the minute I heard that Chappelle had another series or another special out, all I wanted to do was get home to watch it. Uh, so I was super excited. We sat down and watched it like the first night and I thought it was hilarious. Like it didn't even occur to me that it was going to be super controversial. I'm not kidding. Well because it's just Chappelle. Like, he's always, I guess, quote-unquote controversial. That's what makes him funny. Yeah. Like, it's like people – I'll get to this in a minute, but we seriously have a problem in this country with people having zero sense of humor. Um, but Chappelle's – I watched it. I laughed so hard, Jim. The very first time that I watched it, I literally was laughing. I was snorting, like, full-on snorting, and you know what that's like. And I couldn't stop, and I'm laughing, and I have tears in my eyes, and I'm literally rolling around on my couch. So the idea of people saying that they watched it and it was quote unquote not funny, I was like, what the hell's wrong with you people? Like, get yeah. the fuck out of here. I don't have time for that. Like, reality is Dave Chappelle is the funniest man alive. If you do not find him funny, there's something wrong with you. Yeah. Um, That's how I, feel. I, would, I would say going into this, it was was I a Dave Chappelle fan? Not necessarily. I mean, I, you know, it made me laugh. I'm not going to dispute that. Um, it was generally watching everybody freak out over this that made me say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to take a Friday night. I'm going to watch this. Um, and I think it is one, as you said, very funny. Secondly, this is very much in keeping with Dave Chappelle's established reputation. This is not a guy who's going to go up and say, what is the deal with airline food to use that you know, right. Jerry Seinfeld esque cliche, you know, he begins with an observation about Anthony Bourdain killing himself. Doesn't really have a punchline. Then he kind of segues around to the story of a friend he knew from high school who had everything in life and seemed to lose it all and ended up, you know, working in a footlocker. Um, and then he makes the observation. And this guy never thought about killing himself. Right. Uh, you know, expressing, by the way, I think a very um, 
you know, we talked about Bourdain on this show. Like, you know, I when he word broke that he the uh, he'd killed himself, you know, like people, I, I and a whole bunch were furious. He had the best job in the whole wide world. He had what seemed like the best life in the whole wide world, right? And somehow, you know, he finds what he's going through too difficult to uh, go on. And that while we're sympathetic, we're sympathetic to his family, with all these people who are going to miss him, there's also this sense of, you know, hey, how could you do that to us, right? You know, how could, you know, Chappelle oh, absolutely. in a very funny I think- way. He taps into, and, and I've said this before about him to friends, is that Dave Chappelle is all of our inside voice. Mm. And a lot of times he says things that people think and certainly probably don't put it together even in their thoughts in a way that is nearly as funny as what he does. But he finds a way of being very real about his his emotions, um, his his opinions, the things, his observations. Again, like you said, he's not going to be the guy who walks up and says, like, how about that airline food? Or, you know, what about, did you hear the one about? No. Mm. Dave Chappelle makes observational comedy, and he takes it to a different level. In my opinion, he's always been the best, um, it, certainly of this generation. You know, some people compare him to, like, Richard Pryor, Eddie Murphy back when – and Eddie Murphy's got a special coming up, which is something I'm looking forward to. Um, but, you know, those people who push the boundaries – and the thing about it is, like, Chappelle pushed the boundaries to a certain degree back in the day, but it was also allowed to be funny because, remember, he did get his own show. Mm-hmm. On Comedy Central, and it was a huge hit, and he walked away from it because he was sick of the Hollywood bullshit. And I think that's one of the reasons why his fans, and I do consider myself to be one of his big fans, um, I think that his fans, you know, we respect the fact that he left all of it, kind of walked away from it. And when you're as talented as he is and as authentic as he is, I can only imagine how difficult it must be to work with all the dumbass, untalented fake people in Hollywood all the time. Mm. I mean, it's interesting. So, uh, you know, fans of uh, the underrated Mel Brooks classic, Robin Hood Men in Tights, mm-hmm. will know that a very young Dave Chappelle plays, I think the character's name is like Achu, and the joke was that everybody thinks he's sneezing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that he dipped his toes into the Hollywood filmmaking uh, of the you know, routine and what it would take to be, to kind of take the path that presumably would be open to an Eddie Murphy type. And I think it's pretty clear he wasn't interested in that, that that Mm-mm. was going to end up with watered down Dave Chappelle. Um, that, you know, he's never been anything, you know, it's like on the Dave Chappelle show, first of all, I mean, he had recurring, you know, act sketch players, but it's not like it was a sketch show. It's not like, you know, Dave Chappelle and other people. Every sketch was built around Dave Chappelle. And, Correct. You know, you know, many of them very funny. Um Many of them, you know, not I wouldn't say just boundary pushing, but like you know, first if you want to look online, um, the was it the, the racial draft, right? Mm-hmm. The concept of various races picking various celebrities who are multi-ethnic, mm-hmm. and the dispute over who gets Tiger Woods and who gets um, Lenny Kravitz, and, and you know, like it's and it's Mariah Carey, funny. It's got a very serious, like you know, there's like there's an edge to it. This is you know, this is on the one hand you're gonna laugh really hard. But there is something kind of dark and, and you know, like... Uh, well, and of course, there's Clayton Bigsby, mm. the black blind man who yes. was black and also a KKK member. So um, that, yeah. that takes it to, again, he, that was, and that was, you know, 20 years ago. 
And but that's Dave Chappelle. That's what he does. That's what makes him great. That's what makes him funny. That's what he takes topics that make people uncomfortable and allow them to laugh at it. And to point out the ridiculousness of some real life situations that very normal people probably have that feeling and that pushback all the time. And when you see somebody say it and tell the story in a manner in which he did in this particular special, but he does this all the time. Like, as long as it's funny, you can get away with it. I've always said this, but the problem that most leftist comedians have is one, they're not funny. Let's start there. Two, every comedian for the last four years, every special that's come out, borrow, say, Chris Rock and Kevin Hart, every and, and Ron White, I'll give them all passes. Everybody else, it's like, oh, I hate Trump. Trump sucks. Oh, let's talk about this. Let's talk about feminism. Let's talk about Me Too. Let's talk about this. And they do so, but in a way that is to the point now where, like, it's the same joke, right? They all have the same set. Mm -hmm. yeah, the, the closest, the only guy who I've seen do something different with uh, Trump in terms of comedy was uh, John Mulaney, who did a routine called There's a Horse in the Hospital, uh, in which he compared the Trump presidency to having a horse in the hospital. And he's like, we don't know how the horse got there. We don't know what the horse is going to do next. All we know is there is a horse in the hospital and we cannot take our eyes off of it because <laughs> we don't know what's going to happen. And some people think, I, there I don't think there should be a horse in the hospital. Look, we are well beyond that. Right. <laughs> you know, there's already there's, a horse there. Yeah. And it wasn't, you know, by, by no means, it was, uh, you know, I, I don't think you could say if, it was It's pro funny. Trump. It's yeah. funny. Like, and that's the thing is, like, I'm not someone who gets super insulted by political jokes that take digs at the right if they're funny. Yeah. And, you know. We, but we, generally speaking, they're not. Also, there's a ludicrous oversaturation of the market, right? You've got, like, four or five late night shows all offering the same version of, so did you hear what Trump said today, you know? And, right. Yeah. Which is and, you know, and I think that. I think it's hilarious that coming into it, he knew what he was doing, but he also knows that that's who he is. And I think it's why I stopped for a while. And, you know, in the beginning of the of this special, for those of you who have not seen it yet, I don't want to ruin it for you. But to tell you, like, one, obviously there's a lot of cursing. Um, there's yeah. a lot of obscenities oh, yeah. in general. He drops the N-word, like, water. So, like, if you're offended by that. I, you probably shouldn't be listening to our show in general, but like, yeah, but just this FYI. is not for you. <laughs> yeah, this yeah. is not for you. Um, having said that, when he opened up with his two impersonations, um, one of the founding fathers, when they write, are writing the Declaration, <laughs> or when they're writing the Constitution, sorry, and one was of people who are whining and complaining and trying to cancel people and ruin their lives and hunt you down and kill your children. And he explained that he was talking about the audience yeah. and everyone watching because they were the people who were always looking to like hunt people down and cancel culture them. It, and they were terrifying. Imagine, yeah, it's hard to imagine a braver move than a comedian saying, you know, not, like, like everyone's thinking, everyone in the audience thinking, oh, he's talking about the person next to me, you know? Yeah. Um, the, you know, that you stink. You're the problem, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, now, here's my question, Mickey. Did anything in that special, um, granted that, I, you know, you were, I, I'm, I'm enjoying the mental image of you rolling around on the floor laughing with tears coming out of your eyes. Um, but was there anything that you were like, ooh, I wish he hadn't gone there? Or anything, of, oh, I think that went too far. No. 
<laughs> no, I can I honestly say no. Yeah. No, not. not I thought it was perfect from beginning to end. I literally yesterday um, went to a cookout and had some friends and we got into a discussion about whether or not it was his masterpiece and whether or not it was better than killing them softly. So for those of us who are true fans of Chappelle, yes, it has sparked in us the idea that his genius is back. We missed him so much. And no, there is nothing wrong with it. It is perfect. And I, I say that as someone who knows that there are people who are like, oh, but he made fun of trans people. Oh, but he made fun of gay people. Oh, but he made fun of this. He made fun of that. I don't care. It was funny. It was really, really funny. When he was talking about the opioid crisis and comparing it to the crack epidemic, it was quite possibly one of the best, like, (laughs) entire encapsulation of the opioid crisis, both coverage and reaction to it in the country that I've ever seen. Yeah. the, the, The joke that he does where he says, you know, people have compared this and I think now... We all understand, and I certainly understand how whites felt during the crack epidemic. I don't really care either. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the audience laughs, but there's this darkness to it, right? Of like, uh, you know, because if you'd said, well, you know, when crack was ravaging African American communities in the 1980s and 1990s, Americans, you know, white Americans didn't care. People would find that as a, you know, like that, you know, people would be angry about that. But when you tell it as a joke and you frame it in the form of, yes, I'm apathetic about the suffering of other people, too. Because <laughs> you know? right? deep down, we know that we know, we're not endless fountains of You know why? Because we don't care. That's why. Unless it hits home, nobody cares. <sighs> yeah. You know, we, we should care. I think we'd probably try to care. But many of us, you know, like, we, we have limited amounts of... Uh, I, 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 I guarantee you that he probably pissed off both the pro-life and the pro-abortion people. But I will tell you that a line that my friends and I have now started texting each other back and forth repeatedly is my money, my choice. Huh. Uh, so, yeah. So here's so here. So I'll, I'll, I'll bounce the idea off of you. And I'm skeptical mm-hmm. of it. But needless to say. Uh, the circles in which we travel, Mickey and, and folks like that, indisputably this... Uh, uh, this was you know, when you the moment you get into this, this is going to you know set people off. Mickey, do you think he's a closet pro-lifer? I think that he is a closet traditionalist. Mm, OK. And you can you know take that for what it's worth. I think he's probably one of those people. He's not going to like go and say that abortion's bad. He probably has friends that have had abortions. You know what I mean? Um, so he's not going to necessarily condemn those people. But I don't think it's something that he would want for his family. Um, and I don't think that it's something that he'd be out, like, marching for or supporting in that manner. Yeah. Um, I think he's a family man at heart. And I think you can kind of tell that in his observations. Because here's a man who's worth millions upon millions of dollars. Who chose to leave Hollywood to go live in a place outside of Dayton, Ohio. Mm. And basically disappear for 10 years to raise his family. Yeah, no, his uh, his entire He's routine different. about yeah, his entire routine about school shooters. There's an excellent chance I may, you know, bring this up at meet the teachers meet the teachers night. Oh, I was in tears. I was in yeah. tears. Like, and he's there taking notes. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. So, where are you going to uh, be exactly? Yeah, but again, brilliant, like, brilliant observational comedy about things that are real is great. And he is a 
he's an American treasure. We are so lucky to have Dave Chappelle. We're so lucky that he crawled back out into this cesspool of a world to share with us. Because every time I watch him, I laugh. I feel better about myself, about the world around me. Because he makes you remember that, like, not everybody's a tight ass from D.C. <laughs> I was going to say, there's an old saying that, you know, the, in you know medieval times, the court jester was the only person who could speak the truth uh-huh. uh, about the kingdom, because that, that was the job of the court jester, right? To make everybody yes. laugh, they could say things no one else could. You know, Dave Chappelle is the court jester of our modern society, and in not just in the sense of he makes us laugh, but he says the things that quite literally we're being told we cannot say. Correct. And I noticed, is, is, it, is it still at zero on Rotten Tomatoes or whatever it is? It like, was, yeah. The last time I checked it was, which I think is just abhorrent. Like, I, 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 you know, I hate saying this on the show. So like, I tweeted this out. But I did tell people that follow me on Twitter that if their children did not find Dave Chappelle funny, that they had failed as parents. And uh, I felt like they should act accordingly. And I say this because this is a lead off and I'm going to actually come back to this in a second, but I told you earlier about the Dave Chappelle introduction of, you know, who's the scariest people out there. It's the fans, it's the mob, you know, the outrage mob, the cancel culture, et cetera. Um, During the VMAs, they had a comedian. Unfortunately, I don't know his name. He's a little Italian kind of New York guy. Funny. I've seen him do skits before. He's a funny guy. And he was hosting. Well, as part of his opening monologue, one of the things he mentioned was that MTV was going to have a safe space backstage for anyone who needed it at any point when they felt threatened. And they were explaining this as part of his contract negotiations. He then proceeded to say that he thought that they should just kick those people out instead. (laughs) Right? You chuckled. Guess what? Nobody did. The entire room was silent. It And then it blows up all over Twitter that this guy's, quote, bombing because of his antiquated, you know, cisgendered whatever stand-up routine because he made fun of the safe spaces. And, again, it was just a it was just such a piss-poor example of, like, knowing your audience. But, again, who really believes, if you're not in that culture, that they really think that safe spaces are necessary? But there are people of a certain age in this country who legitimately find that to be something of concern and something they need to have. I was going to say, do you think people, you know, I think it's, you know, it's, it's very likely that at least some people at home are laughing. Do you think everyone in that room was afraid to laugh? Well, and then there's that, like, there are definitely like people didn't laugh. And then I'm sure there were people like, Oh, can't laugh at that. Cause you know, safe spaces, but like, what the hell does that say about us as a country? Like, have we really turned into nothing but pussies? Like, that we can't even take a joke? Because here's the thing. Is this why we've got so many people who go and shoot up everywhere, like, from a Walmart to a church? Because they take everything so seriously that they can't laugh at themselves? They can't laugh at anything anymore? It is probably accurate to say that you don't find many mass shooters with terrific senses of humor. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> You know that, that, that <laughs> yeah. Every one of the every time you read one of their manifestos, it is always some sort of "I have been wronged," the world has been so epically unjust to me. Here I am living a, you know, middle class to lower middle class existence, living in my parents' basement. You know, a life that like you know most of the a whole bunch of people's the world. You live in on easy street. 
Um, but they've decided, no, no, this is intolerable. And thus, you know, this belief that they were, you know, promised some sort of grand destiny and it's been denied them and that someone, you know, lots of people have to die because they didn't get what they want. Um, yeah, they could say there's humorless there. And I think that actually, if you do have a sense of humor, you're more likely to be able to find a silver lining or be able to laugh at yourself or recognize your own foibles and frailties. Well, because isn't like the whole point of being a parent? To teach your child that, you know, it's okay to fail because you then pick yourself up, you learn from that experience and keep going. Yeah, but also I think, uh, so, you know, here's a, you, you mentioned something very important there, learn from it. Right. A lot of people don't do that. A lot of people, See? you know, do a bad job, move on to the next job, do the same bad job. Uh <laughs> They do a fight with their boss, have the next job, get into a fight with the boss, the next job, you know, that, uh, I, yeah, I don't know. I just, you know, I, obviously it's very strange to me that one, it never occurred to me that, that the cancel culture was going to come for Dave Chappelle because I, you know, know he does not give a fuck what they think. And it's one of the reasons why I love him. And one of the reasons why I will continue to be a fan is that he does not really cave to them. And and we need more of that. That's what yeah. free speech looks like. I and going, isn't it weird, though, that we've got basically, quote, the adults in the room <clears throat> saying, this is funny. This is hilarious. This is actually, like, hilarious comedy. And we have the young people being like, it's so offensive. It hurts my ears. <laughs> it is. Um, I think it also reflects. I, I think one of the reasons it's this such a good topic for us to talk about, and we can spend a little more time on it than we usually do, is uh, first of all, I think this is only the first salvo, Mickey. I, I think you're going to see over the next. You know, he so he went right up to social justice warrior, PC culture, whatever term, you know, cancel culture, whatever you want to turn, and he just punched it in the crotch. Mm-hmm. And the question is going to be how you know we've already seen the you know zero rating on the tomato meter and you know people den- columns denouncing etc. Et uh, I think this is the first salvo. I think you're going to see a real effort to make sure that Dave Chappelle like pressure Netflix. You know there will be an effort to make sure Dave Chappelle is never in a position to do this ever again. And I don't know how this is going to shake out. I, I'd like to think he's going to you know successfully tell everybody to you know go stick it where the sun don't shine but um not i'm not convinced i don't you know one of the things that Chappelle has going for him Mm. is that he is in fact a comedian who has from the very beginning been like i'm dave Chappelle. this is what i do right and so on i guess it would have been like last saturday i believe it was he did a huge fundraiser for Dayton, um, the victims of the shooting in Dayton. And he had Jerry Seinfeld show up and Kanye West shows up and Eddie Murphy shows up and all of uh, people's, oh, Chris Rock, I think, shows up. And so all of these people show up to support him. And, you know, and he does this great fundraiser so the community loves him because it doesn't matter to him because he'll just go back to his farm in Ohio with his millions and hang out if it gets too bad. But the reality of the situation is someone needed to do this, and he's apparently the only one strong enough, brave enough, and having enough cultural clout Mm. 
to even try it. And I think that's what makes it so fascinating to watch is just kind of seeing him come out and play it out. And, you know, other comedians have come out in support of him because they don't want to be shut down either. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, and and true artisans, if they were paying any attention at all, is like this is 100 percent what the First Amendment's about here, people. Like you're protecting this art and it is art. It's his art form. And God bless him. He bends for no one. Yeah. And my suspicion is so on the one hand, you know, it's interesting. There was a uh, uh, my colleague, uh, David French, had a very interesting column where he talked about everybody's need to stand up against, uh, you know, oppressive PC culture and efforts to shut down speech and stuff like that. And there are a couple of people who said, well, actually, wait a second, you know, like. If you, you know, very few people want you know, for all the people for whom it's not worth it, right? And so my, I salute Dave Chappelle, who's made his fortune and who is, you're right, can say, but the moment this ever gets absolutely intolerable for him, mm-hmm. he can always say, you know what, I'm going back to my place outside Dayton and I'm living the rest of my life happily. Mm-hmm. Most people don't have that option. And so as a result of it, they're not going to go around saying the sort of things that, uh, that Dave, you know, willing to punch PC culture in the, in the crotch, as I said. Um, and he enjoys it so much. Mm. Oh, yeah. Like, that's the part that makes it so, like, what makes his stand up so good is when he's being his true, authentic self, which I really felt like he was in this one, he will often laugh at his own jokes. Yeah. In the best possible way. There's that, I can't believe I got away with that. Yeah, I can't believe (laughs) I just said that. (laughs) He does his little sprint away. Like, he knows. Yes, exactly. He'll run away from the mic and come back. And again, I, I'm a huge fan. I, I I thought it was absolutely fantastic. I was extremely disappointed and a little surprised at at what we've seen from, you know, the outraged mob cancel culture warriors um, over it. I knew that, you know, those who like to bitch would be bitching. But I was surprised that Rotten Tomatoes has gone that far with it. Um, it'll yeah. be interesting to see how it all shakes out. But again, you know, I'm always going to be team Dave Chappelle, period. Yeah. And um, and like I said, I was really interesting having that juxtaposed against that very slight little comment from the comedian at the VMAs. And, you know, that younger crowd reaction to it. It was very, again, like... W- our youth has lost the ability, apparently, to be rebellious. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, for, for the better part of a generation, we had, you know, what you and I would probably call faux rebelliousness. You know, the idea that, um, you know, that there was this rebellious against the, let's say, 1950s ideal. Oh, yeah. That, that everybody had been, re- you know, rebelling against since the 1950s. Right. right. There was, you know, True. That, yes. that, that, you know, that there was what you were, you know, to rebel against, and again, in Hollywood, in the music industry, in, uh, in television and all these sorts of things. If you want, you know, what Mickey, what's the deal with these televangelists? You know, <laughs> I don't think they're very good Christians at all. Bang, you know, mind blown. You know, <gasps> you know like, you know, you, oh, he's edgy. No, he's picking on the absolute safest targets possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember uh, who was there was some sports writer at a show on HBO, and the whole commercial for it was him giving these allegedly edgy takes. And 
all of them were like utterly mundane. Was it Brian Gumble? Because he's like the most boring person on the planet. And he's uh, and, 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 HBO. And I, billionaires should pay for their own bleeping uh, sports stadiums. <laughs> and, and I like, oh, that's the coup de gras, huh? That's that's your big climax. Is I don't think taxpayers should pay for sports stadiums. <gasps> the whole thing was delivered in this, you know, very. It was snark, right? It was, well, it was, it's well, and again, but it's very much like the world has created its own straw man. Yeah, yeah. Like the straw man of this imaginary the man who still lives in 1950s, apparently, America. And that no one has made any... I think the most frustrating thing is there is zero recognition of actual progress made. I'm not saying we live in a perfect country, but we live Mm. in the best country. And I feel like it's very frustrating when those that want to or claim to want to enact change, right, to want to make things better, who refuse to acknowledge the accomplishments that have already been made and the advancements that have been made. I think that it discredits them to suggest that whether it be women or blacks or Latinos or gays, all of us have a lot more rights and um, respectability now, one, than we did even 20 years ago, and certainly more than we do in than any other country in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, a, actually, maybe this makes us our closing thought on Chappelle, because we, we want to get to other topics, but just this observation, <laughs> Mickey. So the irony is, I figure if you were a lefty and you watched that Chappelle special, he definitely makes fun of gun owners, right? He oh, definitely yeah. makes fun of uh, certainly white America and the perception oh, that you know yeah. white America is much more racist than it wants to admit. Absolutely. Um, you know, like like there's he's making uh he he makes fun of a lot of things that the left probably would like to see mocked, mm-hmm. but because he dares cross the line on these other topics, that you know it's as if that doesn't exist. You know, the mm-hmm. whole thing was a giant transphobic, you know, monster. Blah 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 blah. Dude um, made like one gay joke and they went bat shit. So that yeah. tells you all you need to know. He went bat what, Mickey? Bat bat something? Um, that's, yes, bat wano. <laughs> Uh, all right, so here's the thing. Well, no, Netflix has turned on Dave Chappelle if he is the subject of season three of Mindhunter. <laughs> How's that for a transition? Okay. All right, we'll go there. We will go there. All right. Um, yes, thank you. Uh, we'll move on from Dave Chappelle into Mindhunter, my favorite, second favorite topic of Netflix right now, which is, of course, serial killers. Uh, as you guys know, I've been listening to the show, Mindhunter is a series that's on Netflix, and it follows the, it's kind of a slightly fictionalized version of John Douglas's life, the uh, FBI profiler who really started what we now know as um, the behavioral science unit. Um, and so it, it's very interesting to see it all played out. In the first season, we get to meet all the characters, and they rolled out Ed Kemper, and it was fantastic. Um, this season, they introduced Charlie Manson, which was certainly very interesting. Um, and several other characters kind of come along the way, if you will. And Manson uh, is big on Netflix these days, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, Manson, you know, well, Manson's really big He's right now. We ta- yeah. Well, we talked about this earlier in one of the earlier shows. You know, this is the 50th anniversary, and no one is risking missing a dollar on it. Hmm. Um, so, as it turns out, the guy who plays Manson, in, and he does a phenomenal job. I, I will say this the casting that, and the way that these characters play out 
from the BTK character to the Kemper character to Manson to all literally how they cast every single one of these people that we're familiar with. It is stunning how well that it's done. But Charlie Manson, the actor who plays him, was phenomenal. And come to find out, he also played Charlie Manson in Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, all right. Well, there you go. So he got to play Charlie twice this year. If you're an actor who looks like Charles Manson, get your gigs now. Right. (laughs) It's a boom year. It's the best year we're going to have. It is. It's a boom year. So, yeah. So this year, and, and this was very much focused on the Atlanta child murderers. And if you are not familiar with the case, it does a pretty good job of introducing you to it and how it all went down. Um, I felt like they were very true to a lot of things. Um, It was where John Douglas, the man who wrote the book Mindhunter that all of this is based on, um, it was really the case where he kind of made his name, like where for the first time ever, he came up with things and helped them narrow the suspect pool. And when they found him, they were then able to look for other things to tie him together. And like I said, it it was the case that made him and, and took the uh, behavioral analysis unit to a whole nother level. And so walking through that and that particular case was fascinating as well. Yeah. Mickey, are you finished with the current season? Yes. Okay. My other friend who has a persistent but not quite yet unnerving level of interest in serial killers <laughs> um, was describing the show. She, too, is a fan. And she said that the season ended with a, not a twist, but a revelation about one of the cases they were investigating. Mm-hmm. And so I, I guess, you know, potential minor spoiler warner, warning. The gist was, like, they're investigating something, and every previous case on this show has been, you know, has been solved. One of the cases is not. And the reason it is not, you know, solved in this season is because in real life, these cases have not been solved. Mm-hmm. Um, Mickey, do you, you know, did you feel like the rug had been pulled out under you when you came across that? Or did you feel like that was a, ooh, you know, wow, that's a, you know, spooky, you know. How did you feel when you came to that point? Um... Well, I think that we're leading into characters that haven't necessarily been developed yet, mm-hmm. things that haven't happened yet. Um, so you have to be aware of that, kind of going into it, I guess, moving forward. Um, but yeah, no, I, I wasn't bothered by it. Mm-hmm. I, but again, it does make you, like, each one of their seasons has ended with the feeling like they're just hoping and praying that Netflix picks them up again because they haven't really completed their story yet. Mm, okay. That's kind of how I feel. I mean, I, I, there was a part of me that says, I think I can very much understand how a viewer, you know, you, you, you go into a show and fairly early on. What specifically bothered you or bothered her about it? Um, I don't know if she would say bothered, but she was like, it was very much a surprise of, you know, because I, I believe they're up to the early 80s in the show now, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, but most of what we're watching is history, not, you know, ancient history, but, you know, history of about a generation ago. Um, and then when you find out that actually, no, these crimes remain unsolved because the perpetrator was never caught, they still don't know who did this. Um, that that was, when you watch a show, it kind of establishes certain rules, unwritten rules. Okay, so, right? all right, now I realize what you're talking about. My bad. My bad explanation. Mm -hmm. Allow me to help you out with that. This is something that's very true to like 
this is a very specific to the Atlanta child killings okay. situation. Um, it was nearly 100% a political problem from start to finish in solving this case. Mm-hmm. Um, they absolutely were able to tie Wayne Williams to 23 of the 29 killings through okay. fiber evidence, something that they did not get into on Mindhunter, but something I know about because, well, you know who I am. Ah, okay, so <laughs> you, there you were things the source materials. <laughs> yeah, right? So here's the thing. There was a very specific fiber that was in the carpeting in his parents' home. It was a tri it was a tri-sided green carpet fiber that apparently was only made at a small factory, like a mom and pop shop. And it was one of those deals where they literally tracked down the last sale of it to the people who had sold it, where it went, found it, and were able to match the fibers from the green carpet to fibers that were found on the bodies, along with he had purple carpeting. And they had that matched. And then they had also, this is crazy, but the guy who did the fiber match, there were two two that weren't able to be fiber matched while the case was still active. And um, they had tan fiber on it. He actually went and spent like five years researching to find out that Wayne Williams had rented a car with a tan interior with a fiber match as well. This guy did it. Um, and... The reason that they tried the adults was, and specifically for the adults, is it was the one where they had the most direct evidence. But they actually had a ton of eyewitnesses um, for the child kidnappings and murders because there were other children who he approached mm-hmm. and they did not take. So they were able to ID him. They knew who he was. Um, and so there really was no question to it. But instead of doing, you know, Instead of doing it that way, because of political pressure and because of political reasoning, they wanted this thing closed and done and out the way. They felt like they had the most physical evidence against him um, in the cases of the what they call the adults. But the adults themselves were very slight. And if you didn't know that they weren't like teenagers, you would have thought they were teenagers. Mm. And... So they also fit the MO, but they had the most physical evidence tying him to it. And that's why they tried him for that. Just to, I mean, their their position was, let's get him off the streets. Let's, you know, we know we can get him for this. We did. But I truly believe that Atlanta failed miserably and not trying and tying the other 23 cases to it. And there were like five cases that were definitely not related to him. Hmm. But that's not unusual. You know what I'm saying? Like in yeah. that group, there's some other random person out there that's done something. It could be domestic. It could be anything. Um, but they never said that he did all of them. That was never part of the discussion. But he absolutely, without a doubt, did at least 23 of them because they have fiber evidence that matches him to all of it. All right. Rest easy, Atlanta residents. Does that make you feel better? I mean, yeah, you know, certainly it makes me feel better. Um, I hope that me. that makes other. I didn't realize, you know, because obviously I, I know the backstory <laughs> and I do know the source materials that it didn't bother me. So when you were saying that, I'm like, I'm kind of missing something here because they almost always lead off with, and they do, and everyone kind of leading into the next season. But I realize now what you were saying, and you know what? That's something they may have wanted to clarify. There you go. It'll be um, more while, clear okay, so while to those on, that aren't familiar. Yeah, while we're on the topic of psychotic killers. So I, I want to lay down a marker here. 
Um, All right. Uh, so people have probably seen the online, the release of trailers for the upcoming Warner Brothers movie Joker. All right. Starring Joaquin Phoenix as the titular character. It's technically... Uh, it is the least Batman-looking movie set in the Batman universe ever because it's not actually very much a comic book movie. Um, it's just the story of how Arthur Fleck is the name of the character, whose initials would be A. Fleck, suggesting that the screenwriter's got some beef with Ben Affleck, um, how he became the Joker, uh, the sad life of a comedian. It looks very 70s. It looks like a Martin Scorsese movie. Um, De Niro has a supporting role in it, et cetera, et cetera. I probably will end up seeing it, Mickey, although I've, I've always been kind of wary about this concept since the beginning. Okay, and why I are you fear, weary? Yeah. I, uh, so first of all, the question of, you know, do you need a, do you need a story that's all about the Joker? Uh-huh. Two, how do you make him interesting as a character? Three, you know, like, or as a, you know, as a protagonist, you know, because in the end, you know how the story has to end. It has to end with him being the Joker and becoming, you know, a clown-faced, you know, monstrous killer. This is mm-hmm. it's really like one step removed from John Wayne Gacy, the origin story, right? Right. Um, <laughs> and the thing is, is and now we're going to take what, uh, uh, Lucky There Phoenix, probably is one of those. Right, who's a really good, yeah, I'm sure somebody, you know, somebody's, somebody's getting a, a studio meeting right over, mm-hmm. right after this podcast. Um that basically this was going to turn into that when you cast a guy who's won Oscars for playing Johnny Cash and is known for making these amazing transformations into his roles and all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff, um, that inevitably, no matter what the intention of the filmmakers it was, this movie is probably going to end up glamorizing the character of the Joker. It's probably going to offer a somewhat sympathetic portrait of a guy who was uh, beaten down by life and had so many unjust things. Is there happening. any way that they can't? I mean, I, I kind of assume that's the whole point. They're going to be like, this is why the Joker's a bad guy. Yeah, and I guess everyone's was mean to him. Yeah. It's entirely possible at a different time and place I would feel differently about this movie. But look, what have we been seeing in the news the last couple of months? You know, one loser after another who decides that, you know, they've they've had it with the world. The world has been unjust to them, and they're going to go out on a killing spree. Mm. Right? And from what, again, I'm judging this based on the trailers. If you mm-hmm. want to go see the movie, go right ahead and see it. If you don't want to, you don't have to. You know, this is just what I'm what I'm taking from what I'm seeing in these trailers. It sounds like he becomes a quasi-inspirational figure, almost cult-like, right? People mm-hmm. believe, you know, uh, there's a sign, we are all clowns, right? This is, you know. So, how- obviously, you know, I'm never seeing this movie. Yeah, Continue. there you go. This is, you know. We found something that scares Mickey. Um, mm-hmm. But the thing is, is that my sneaking suspicion is that a lot of people out there who, who already have a head full of emotional troubles, who already have uh, a sense of relentless victimhood, who are collecting grievances, who are already kind of ticking time bombs to begin with, they're going to see this movie and say, yes, that's me. Finally, a character who speaks to me. Finally, a character who understands what my life is. You mean is. like the guy who dressed up as the Joker and shot up the people in Aurora? Right. We've already had one guy who decided to try to commit mass murder, convinced that he was the Joker, even though for some reason he started dyeing his hair orange or something, right? Um, in certain communities of, you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily an alt-right thing. I think it's just more of the online angry loser thing. Uh, Heath Ledger's Joker, the argument that, no, he's the real hero of the story or something like that, right? Now, here's the thing. Yeah. Now, I don't, okay. I'm not saying censor art. You know, you, you never know what's going to come have and set somebody off. But man, 
this I, I there's a whole bunch of imagery in this movie that I, I think I could see this going very badly, Mickey. Uh, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. And maybe Jim's just being paranoid. But, well, uh, I was about to remind our audience that you are the worrywart of the group. Um, I am not. I assume that crazy people will see inspiration in anything. Um, so I'm never really afraid of violence in media. Um, however, I will. I want to run something by you that I read this week about it, and I want to get your take on it. Based on all the things that we've just discussed, does it surprise you to know that when it was screened this week um, at a film festival, it got an eight-minute standing ovation at the end? Wow. Um, if I had more faith in the kind of people who attend f- film festivals, that would mean more to me. Right. So what does that mean yeah. about them? I mean, look, here's the, again, maybe it look, maybe it is great. My, here, I guess here's my th- the, the question is by the end of this movie, do you walk away with a certain level of sympathy towards the Joker, even though he's become a homicidal maniac by the end of the movie? Or do you look at it and say, this is why no matter how much we may sympathize with what experienced him, that he crosses an unacceptable moral line, right? Same way, you know, and we, we've talked about this in a whole bunch of the materials we discuss on this uh uh, on this podcast, Mickey, you know, the, the, uh, the mother of one of the Columbine shooters writing her story. Yes. Right. All of these things that, you know, into, into the minds of someone who is evil. And our, my point is not, no, we should never look into them, but <laughs> you know, we, we were just joking with, with the Chappelle show. We've got a limited amount of sympathy, <laughs> right? At mm-hmm. some point, some of these, let us understand these people well, and, and again, close to oh, the beautiful part of what you're saying just brings us full circle on Mindhunter, because mm-hmm. one of the very um, key quotes that John Douglas uses on more than one occasion is from Nietzsche, which is when you stare long enough into the bit to the abyss, the abyss looks into you. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that that's fair, although as someone who's, you know, I think I watch a pretty decent amount of true crime and death um i i I don't feel like a murderer or that i'm gonna go and you know do anything so i'll let you know um i again this is why i say you know there are people that keep in mind that here, here perfect example keep in mind that you've got someone like a john hinckley jr who watched Jodie Foster in Taxi Driver mm-hmm. and was inspired by Taxi Driver to go and shoot Ron Reagan mm-hmm. to impress her. People will be inspired by anything, like legitimately anything. And, you know, some violence ties into it, sure, but you can't know what's going to do it. And I, you know what, I 100% the art, I 100% support the arts being able to do what they want to do. But my problem with this movie is that it looks like it's probably just going to suck because <laughs> I don't like clowns. The idea of doing a Joker, like, I, I don't, I, it's not that he's not a strong enough character, in my opinion, to carry his own movie. I just don't know why anyone would care yeah. because, you know, are you developing Joker fans? 
Yeah. Again, a big question. You know question. what I mean? You, like, it, it's, it's just a, villain, it's a weird. You know, he works in opposition to someone, right? You know, what, yes. what, everything that makes him a great villain means that you want to see Batman or some other hero go in conflict and, and clash with him. You know, and obviously that can't happen in this movie. Um, all right. So we talk about the idea of, of ideation, right? The idea of you plant the idea in somebody's head. Mm-hmm. One of our, I want to say one of our first, but you know, a long while back, Mickey, you and I talked about, you know, coming full circle to Netflix, 13 Reasons Why, right? Yes. It was a teen suicide. <clears throat> and I, there were a whole bunch of people who had problems with that first season who said, boy, if you wanted to make suicide look glamorous to a troubled teenager, this is how you do it. Um, I was on that. Coming up, right? I, I'm definitely on that bandwagon of it was very glamorized yes um i mean it's you know again neither you nor i nor i hope anybody else is arguing in favor of censorship you know shut down the tv series but just the idea that there are certain things you can depict on film that are a bad idea <laughs> and you know no doubt the creators of 13 reasons why had the very best of intentions and wanted to create something uh, that would tell a story of a teen suicide and obviously discourage it and you know just may have gone about it in a bad way um, I, I have recently heard 13 reasons why I've described as trauma porn. Mm. And I thought that was perfect. Um, as you know, I watched the first season and one of the things that was exceptionally controversial in the first season was not just the glamorization of the suicide of the child and how literally it was kind of one of those, you know, how you, if someone does idealize suicide and they think like, oh, well, you'll miss me when I'm gone. Well, this would definitely prove that point. They like basically turned her into a rock star at her little school. Um, but the other problem of it became they actually showed the scene. So the manner in which she committed suicide. Mm. And I did not personally find that to be like all that whatever. But apparently that bothered people really much to the point where it was it aired like that for the first season with the suicide in it um, was up throughout the entire second season. But before they started this third season, they took that scene out. Huh. I wonder. How do you feel about that? Because I think I have, you know, mixed feelings. Same. I have mixed feelings. One, it was already out there for quite a while. Um, two, I, the manner in which she died to me, it's not as important as how the people reacted to it. That's the whole point of the story. And I don't know if they took it out just thinking like, look, you know, people are focusing in on it and they're like, that's not our point. Mm. So we'll just take it out and then they won't have that to focus on. I don't know. Um, the same person who called it trauma porn also called it currently boring trauma porn. And I would have to agree. The The first season was interesting. The second season, interesting. I, I shouldn't even say interesting. None, none of them were interesting. They were the kind of thing where you start watching them. And I believe I told you guys and the listeners this before. It was like a really bizarro world after school special. Um, yeah, no, I, I remember your discussion of this, Mickey, and that, yeah. you know, one of those things where you can see stories that are well done, well acted, the dialogue can be realistic, you know, but at the same time, at the end of it, you're still left wondering, okay, but why did they make that? You know, mm-hmm. what did they have to say other than... And in this case, the casting's kind of awful. Okay. The kid, the actors are kind of not good. <laughs> okay. There are a couple that are good, but there are, are some that are just honestly they're just terrible and 
it's it's just very confusing. Mm. Um, so are you gonna watch season three? I did. Oh, you did. Okay. Thoughts? Get any better? Get any worse? Oh, I got considerably worse. Um, I felt like you know, you know a lot of the characters now. There's new characters being introduced. There's yet another, you know, secret to be revealed and uncovered. And I just felt like this particular secret to be revealed and uncovered was a little unnecessary. And and again, I agreed with the guy who called it boring trauma porn. Okay. Trying to avoid spoilers if you can. Mm-hmm. First season was about a suicide. Second mm-hmm. season was about the buildup to a school shooting, I believe. Correct. All right. Mm-hmm. Can you say what season three is about, or does it not have one particular focusing event? A murder. Okay. All right. That'll do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's about a murder. And I guess as someone who watches a lot of shows about murder, I've seen them done much better. Mm. You know, like the suicide was their thing. And not that that's like, you know, that literally was their thing. But again, I feel like any of the mistakes that they made as far as leaning into it and the suicidal storyline and whatnot, it it was all done in the first season. Like everything that's happening in the second and third, really not too much about it. Cause second season, yes, it was leading up to a school shooting, but it was also dealing with the trial. And so Mm. what it basically did while the first season was all the side of the victim, Hannah. I mean, I don't know if you want to call her the victim, whatever the person who died. Yes. Hannah. Um, and then the second season was the people that she had called out their side of each of their side of the story. Okay. So the consequences flowing out from all of that. Yes, exactly. It's, it's really heavy handed sometimes. Would this have become a, this probably would have been a good miniseries. And that's kind of what it is. Like. Yeah, like it's yeah, it's kind of like a mini series because like there's there's 13 episodes of it, and that's based on obviously the whole 13 reasons why thing. But definitely, this last season didn't need to have 13 episodes. They could have cut that way down. Mm. There's the sneaking sense that like yeah, look, every TV show asks you to kind of suspend your disbelief for some aspect of it. Um, mm-hmm. After a while, you're like, okay, why are why is Jessica Fletcher always around a murderer every week? Right. And, wh- and why do police never suspect her? She writes about murders right. all the time, but no right. one ever thinks she's the one who did it. You know? Yeah, like there's Angela a Lansbury. Lot. I needed an idea from my next. There's novel. a lot of a stretch going on in a lot of the storylines. Cabot Cove um, had the highest murder rate of any city in America <laughs> by far. But uh, you know. But but so the idea is you, know, you have this. Well, I suppose if you had these things like dominoes, right? If the idea of like there was a suicide that shocked a community and that set things in motion that caused other people to take yes, uh, extra, and surpri- that's kind of how they're do- trying to handle it. Yes. Yeah, you could probably do that for a while. But after a while, people are going to think, "Oh my God, this town is cursed." Um, tell you example. Yes. And season three, people had to start acknowledging, "Hey, there's something weird going on in Hawkins." Right. <laughs> people can't cover that one up any easily. So, oh, yeah. it was a terrible ball fire at midnight on the Fourth of July. You know. Mm-hmm. Oh no, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm going to jump just completely out of this and into something else that oh. I am dying to discuss with you and our listeners. And and I let you talk about your you know Star Warsy thing earlier, and we're going to talk about more of it. This is really important, though. Mm-hmm. The Bachelorette ended. <laughs> do, do you mean forever? 
No. Oh. But our girl, Hannah Brown, who I love, picked the wrong guy. She just did. She picked the wrong guy. She picked the little singer guy from Nashville and thus broke Tyler C.'s heart. And all of America wanted her to pick. What's that? Was Tyler the notorious virgin? Oh, no, no, no. No no virgins on this show. I guarantee you that. Um, Oh, okay. It was the other show. All right. Yes, yes. This is the one where the girl's picking and, and, you know, showing off her sexuality and whatnot. And so, anyway, she ends up, like, everything goes poorly with the country singer guy. He's a cheater. He's a liar. She dumps him. They go back to the reunion show. And she sees Tyler, and she's all smiley and flirty, and her eyes are all big. And she's like, you know, I still have feelings, so I'd be totally open to, you know, drinks. And he kind of, like, looks at her, gives this, like, sly smile. And he's like, you know, I'd be open to that. So it's all over the tabloids. The two of them go out, like, the next night after the live taping, and he's seen leaving her apartment the next day. So, of course, everyone's like, oh, you know, maybe they'll start dating. Well, within a day and a half, he was spotted with Gigi Hadid. For those of you unfamiliar with that name, Gigi Hadid is a supermodel, like a major supermodel. She's in videos. She is the Maybelline girl. She has lunch. She's been in the Victoria's Secrets walks. Like, she's gorgeous and a certainly a hot commodity. He was seen walking out of her apartment. Then they've been seen hanging out and whatever. And guess what? Now Tyler C. is dating Gigi Hadid. That's okay. You know, so you go from The Bachelor to dating a supermodel. Mm-hmm. He has to be the biggest success story of the entire show. That's, because, you know. It, 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 to me, I was like so blown away by it because everyone was like, wow, you know, Tyler's like amazing. Like he really did seem to be like a great guy. He's good looking. Has you know his life together, so to speak, and Hannah screwed it up, and it it definitely gave me the impression that you know Gigi may have been sliding into his DMs earlier, but now they're dating. He was originally being considered to be like the new Bachelor. That's off the market. He's not <laughs> the new Bachelor. Hey, yeah. let's get twenty three strangers to see if they can keep up, keep pace with Gigi Hadid. Right. Exactly. High bar there, ladies. Good luck. Yes, so he is no longer in the running for that, but he is dating her, and our poor, precious little Hannah B is going to be on Dancing with the Stars. No, well, right, like wah wah. It's just not quite there. So yes, I wanted to share that with you all because I felt like one, I know how much you just wait with bated breath for Bachelorette updates, but more to the point, I also know. That that was one that I thought you'd actually appreciate. I, and I just appreciate. for those of you who remember me saying that Mr. Bias said that there was only one real boy on the show, that was Tyler C, the one that is now dating Gigi Hadid. Okay, he, yeah, he, that that that's a status symbol right there. You know, mm-hmm. I parlayed my cheesy reality show appearance into dating a supermodel. I, I salute you, sir. Yeah, you win. That that's uh, you, you cash in your chips at just the right time. So. And again, I believe this would probably make him the most successful of the series. <laughs> also, by the way, like, so can we start doubting the judgment of uh, uh, Gigi Hadid? Uh, along with the fact, like, you know, compare that, like, when Kate Beckinsale picked up uh, Pete Davidson after no. the No! One, no. they're, like, the same age. Like, she's in her 20s, he's in his 20s. 
Um, he's really attractive and successful and played college football and has his own business. And so I can see why she would find him like attractive and want to hang out. You, you do realize that Gigi Hadid has every conceive like, you know, her, her choice of just about every guy. I assume. But think about it. You're Gigi Hadid and you're watching reality shows because you're bored. Oh, okay. and apparently you're a fan, right? It's like shopping for, you know, a date if you want. Like, you see something on TV you like. You make a phone call to your agent. <laughs> it, that's a good point. If you're a supermodel, I am sure tell every channel is like QVC for men. Right. Oh, I'd like that one. Let me call them up and order them. <laughs> yes. Yes. One of the most fascinating things I learned while watching my Keeping Up with the Kardashians is the way that, like, people who are really, like, famous and attractive – would just literally have their agents call out of nowhere and be like, hey, does Chloe want to go on a date with so-and-so? And like, no. No, I don't. I don't even know you. But, yeah, they do it all the time. So I imagine if you're Gigi Hadid, you just sit at home, it's QVC, you know, like, hey, I'd like to order one of those, please. Oh, you know, a date would be terrific. I'll have my people talk to your people. Exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so I found that, like I said, I found that to be one of those little interesting tidbits that our listeners seem to appreciate so much from me when I give them all their bachelor. I, I'm glad you are watching this so that we don't make it. And actually, that is that is somewhat intriguing. That really, look, everybody on one of these shows wants to be a celebrity. Why do they want to be a celebrity? So they can date supermodels. So, mm-hmm. and now Tyler's doing it. So congratulations, yeah. Tyler. Okay. Uh, is Mickey? Is this enough to make you one uh, want to smoke a jewel? <laughs> uh, or is this enough to make you say, I've had enough of reality television. I'm going to totally distract myself with football and Le'Veon Bell and um, Antonio Brown freezing his feet off and stuff like that. Well, I, I, let's go ahead and you know what? We haven't been on the air for a while, so I think they can handle a little longer show today. Yeah. So, but, so I think we're going to start out with, let's go with the jewel, the magic jewel. And for those of you who don't... We should emphasize, this is not a, like, emerald or a ruby-type jewel. I'm going to explain not something that uh, Gwyneth Paltrow wants you to stick someplace. Yeah, no. The smoking thing that suddenly went from, oh, hey, those people are vaping, to this is the biggest health menace that must be eradicated, you know, in, like, a two-day span. Correct, yes. And I smoked for many years and was able to quit because of using a jewel. And um, I, obviously, then, am a huge fan of them. Everyone who sees you that's a current smoker and sees you smoking a jewel will automatically say, well, it's probably just as bad for you as a cigarette. And I'm like, yeah, but at least it doesn't smell as bad. So, meh. Um, That's where I'm at with the health concerns on it, by the way. I don't understand, and maybe you can explain to me, there are lots of these little, uh, you know, vape, they're kind of portable vapes with the little pods that go in and out the top, similar to the jewel that are not facing lawsuits all over the country and not facing ads from the truth. Do you remember the truth people that do like the tobacco, you know, cigarette yes. smoking, there were disgusting ads. There'd be like snot hanging on things or whatever. Yeah. Um, those same people are now doing ads that are anti jewel. So, is, first of all, okay, is it genuinely uh, exactly the same health risks, just a different uh, packaging, so to speak, a different delivery no, system? Not at all. Is, isn't most people use switch to the jewel because they're trying to quit, and some people have success, some people don't? Um, no, and some people don't do it to quit. Some people just do it to quit smoking. 
because the thing about a jewel is you are taking in nicotine. Okay, that's the vapor that you're taking in. Mm-hmm. But it's vapor. It's not smoke. And when you're mm-hmm. smoking, you're taking in tar. Ah, and the, okay. the tar and the carcinogens that you're pulling in is what causes all the damage to your lungs and causes cancer and emphysema and, you know, PCA, whatever that one is. Um, and so that's what that's all about. And the vapor that you're taking in, it's not smoke. That's what a lot of people are like, oh, how's it work? Is it smoke? It's like. No, it's actually just water vapor. All of mm-hmm. it is water vapor. Now, obviously, it has nicotine within the water vapor, but these people are have gone insane. I don't, I don't even know what else to tell you. And it sounds like there were a lot of teenagers purchasing jewels, and and so they weren't getting carded for them. And so now. Like, that was part of the crackdown. Like, I go in and they card me every single time that I have to get pods, which isn't that often. But when I go in to get them, they're always carding me, which I think is fascinating. You know, now here's it without revealing your age. That makes you feel good, right? (laughs) Fabulous. If I look like I am not 21, which would make me 20, I'm down. I was going to say, you you talk about, you know, various substances that can be abused or meant to keep out of the hands of kids. Look. Every single every single establishment that sells, whether it's tobacco, alcohol, jewels, any of that kind of stuff, they should be carding every customer. And I emphasize this not to stop criminal behavior, but just because it makes people feel good. <laughs> it really, so really, really does make people feel good. It, it, I don't mind getting carded, like, ever. It never bothers me. I don't feel like, oh, my God, such an annoyance. No, I've actually had people stop and take pictures of me when I was being carded. Because you know me, you've met me, you've been out with me many times. It's not hard for you to imagine someone carding me and being me being like, oh, absolutely. Hey, could you take my picture while he's carding me? You're going to say you, in addition to finding that very believable, you don't make it, it's conceivable that you behave younger than 21. Okay, I think that's fair. <laughs> there are times when I do. That's but, without uh, a doubt. I, I, so I guess there's a part of me that feels a little bit, you know, again, my, my attitude towards all these things is, is fairly libertarian. That, like, First of all, what do most people die of in a fire? Smoke, Smoke inhalation. inhalation. Right? So the, I, I, I have a hard time believing that anybody really believed, I'm going to light this small object in fire right in front of my mouth, and then I'm going to inhale it, and I'm going to hope you know, there's no way that could harm my lungs. You know? Look, you can say whatever you want, but in the 30s and and I think even into the 40s, they were recommending that you smoke to lose oh, weight. The, uh, the old D.C. office for National Review, we had a Ronald Reagan smokes Chesterfields, and so should you poster. See, uh, there you go. You know, so I granted that. But let's say since the minimum the 1960s, you know, certainly mm-hmm. by the time you and I are on the scene, you know. Everybody knew this was not healthy for you. And some people are like, you know what? This looks cool or I'm curious. Or uh, some people, uh, you know, uh, uh, people I know smoke cigars, say that gives them a little bit of, you know, the nicotine gives them a mental jolt. It's kind of the equivalent of the caffeine in the morning. Yes. Listeners can probably tell I don't smoke myself. I've never been all that interested in it. But hey, it's your it's your life. It's a free country. Do what you want to do. Overnight, Juul suddenly turned into... The Ebola virus. All of a sudden, it turned into hackers. It turned into carjackers. It turned into this major menace that had to be eradicated. And I'm Mm -hmm. always a little wary when I see that happen that quickly. 
Yeah, it feels very suspicious, and I legitimately don't really know what the move is here outside of the fact that it may have something to do with the tobacco industry, Um, because you never know. But I do know that Philip Morris was looking to invest in Jewel at some point, and so that could have led to additional crackdowns. Mm. I don't know. What I do know is that the way that people are acting is absolutely obscene. I saw a study or an article rather about a study that absolutely made me laugh out loud. And then I felt the need to mock the person who wrote the article because it was suggesting that there was a study, Jim. Mm -hmm. And in a 12 month period, 12 people had gotten sick from using a jewel. They believed that the jewel could have contributed to their bronchitis or emphysema. Ah, so let's this right. You're at risk for bronchitis or emphysema. And you're smoking anything. <laughs> right. But more to the point, oh, yeah. we're talking about 12, 12 people many? got sick. Yeah. 12. 12 people got sick. Like, that, first of all, like, I, I would assume that would happen on placebos. So, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, it was just one of those piss poor studies, but they were pushing it really hard that, you know, all of these people got sick. And I'm like, do you hear what you're saying out loud? Mm. Do you know how many people die from smoking cigarettes every single year? And you're talking about 12 people got bronchitis? Yeah, that, that seems, you know, that seems really low. Um, yeah, kind of kind of odd there of, of what made, oh, the other possibility, as you said, is that, you know, are the tobacco companies into it or, or you know, funding it or something like that? Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, uh, the, uh, the other thing which was this concurrent push to raise the purchase of the tobacco products to age 21. Mm-hmm. Right. Then all of a sudden, you know, Mitch McConnell, all kinds of folks who you'd figure would be like, eh, let's go. all of a sudden it became this like big, huge bipartisan necessity. Like overnight, somebody flipped a switch and this suddenly became a really important priority. OK, you want to know who I think it was then? Sure. Insurance companies. If they can keep people from starting to smoke when they're younger, it saves them literally millions upon millions of dollars, probably billions of dollars. And coverage costs later on. Because they die quicker. No, because they don't die. Uh, so here's the thing. Do, do insurance companies want you to keel over? Like, I guess. Wait, but have... the thing is, if you're not smoking, like if you, they don't want you using all of your insurance money that you invest, they don't actually want to have to pay it back out. Mm-hmm. If there's something wrong with you, they hate that. So they try to do everything they can. Like, and it was for a long time. Like if you were a tobacco user, they, they still do. In many cases, there's a surcharge. They charge you more per month for your life or for your health insurance. Mm. So my thought process, taking it all the way back to the root would be that they could be pushing for it, thinking that if they can keep younger people from starting to smoke, then they won't have the higher payouts later on with them. I, uh, Maybe that is. Maybe actually that that we, we we've established a motive. All right, now we have to see what right. needs an opportunity there. So. Right, exactly. Because I'm like at this point, I have not nothing. I've thought about it a million times. I've got nothing, no real reason for them to be quite so hateful towards vape. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. So I, I, you know, and listeners, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this because I know you've heard them talk about it. They, it's literally, it's you know, it's on the news. It's on those fake news shows like. Entertainment Tonight, everyone's always talking about vapes and the dangers of vapes, so. It's on those fake news shows like Maddow. <laughs> You're ridiculous. Anyway, um, so we, we probably should begin to move on to our final topic now, Mickey, just because. Yes, uh, yes, uh, but so I we, think we our listeners, 
Yeah, I think our listeners should be excited, too, because it's as though the NFL gods created this season just for Gemini. So you're, you base this upon Heinz Ward, uh, one of the all-time great NFL receivers. Well, and also Le'Veon, obviously. Yeah. Uh, never caught by Ty Law. <laughs> never caught by Darrell Revis. Never caught by Bain when he blew up Gotham City. <laughs> Those are his three greatest returns of all time. Um, I love Heinz Ward. I, I love the sequel where Heinz Ward is trying to help liberate Gotham from from Bane. They, they, we never we never keep follow what his character does, and I assume Big Ben and everybody else is killing over. I, I look like the crater was big enough to kill all of them. Yeah, I think oh, the only one who escaped was Heinz. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we've got you know Le'Veon Bell. So here's the thing, Mickey, are you rooting against Le'Veon Bell in the coming season? Oh, obviously. Okay. Interesting. Soon as the jersey comes off and you're like, screw him. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, yes. That I am not one who's like, oh, I love the play. No, I love my Steelers. Okay. Is your ire towards Bell or Antonio Brown last seen thawing his feet out in a microwave mm. uh, and arguing about what kind of helmet he can wear? Uh, which one, like, who are you rooting against this season more? It's really hard because I think the person that I'm probably rooting against more is AB. Because what, if you had asked me at some point, like I was ready for Le'Veon to go, as you well know, last year. I was either play, don't play, whatever. This is ridiculous. And he's a ridiculous person and he does ridiculous things. But what AB has done is just, incredible and it also leads me to believe that the Steelers organization had done a much better job of keeping a lid on just how freaking crazy he was um because since watching him you know on his own and certainly if you've watched any episodes of hard knocks like he doesn't look right like I, I you know I'm not one to try and diagnose somebody from you know afar or what have you but like if somebody's close to AB I feel like you know you should Spend some time with him. Make sure he's all right because he doesn't look right. He doesn't look uh, right. Something's yeah, not right I was there. Say, <clears throat> look, there are a lot of hot shot, kind of loud mouth, um, maybe even narcissistic wide receivers in the NFL. I think Keyshawn Johnson kind of st- established that mold with give yes. me the damn ball back in the late 1990s. So we're used to a certain amount of, hey, they're not throwing to me enough and, you know, I'm open. You know, We're used to a little bit of that from your typical top tier NFL wide receiver. Terrell Owens, you know, all those kind of guys. I, I think what you're seeing, the sorts of problems the Raiders have had in this training camp, as in he doesn't want to wear that kind of helmet. He wants his own special kind of helmet. And or, oh, he accidentally froze his feet. Can we talk about that for a second? Sure. All right. So I I know a lot of people who do cryogenics to help with sports injuries. You, like, they tell you before you go in, like, you have to wear gloves and the socks and you can't have any jewelry on and, like, all of that. I just find it very hard to believe that no one told him, that the people that were there operating it, that he needed to have it. But beyond that, I mean, it's just, it's so strange. But here's the, here's the craziest part of all of this. You know, of course, they've all, everything started to go really downhill fast for Antonio after he did Madden, the cover of Madden last year. Ah, the and Madden of course, curse. The great Madden curse. And someone, um, being the genius that they are, actually looked at the cover of Madden 
And in, at the bottom where it lists like the additional game designing companies that worked on it, one of them is called Frostbite. <laughs> and I was like, well, never before have we had the Madden curse be quite so literal, but here you go. Who's on the Madden cover this season? Um, it is going to be Patrick Mahomes, I believe. Yes. Oh, because right, um, you know who I'm getting a little tired of? Who? Baker Mayfield. Interesting. He came up yesterday when we were discussing people as well. After Dave Chappelle, Baker Mayfield made the discussion. And oh, yeah, he's good. I, I just, uh, you know, it, he, he was pretty darn good as a rookie. Do you find that he's just being too cocky? Yeah. Um, I think the Browns will be significantly improved this year. Um, <laughs> I think Odell, look, Odell Beckham Jr. Oh, here's the thing. Odell Beckham Jr. was who he was for the last few years for the Giants. And they were terrible the last two years. So, oh, yeah. so let's not, you know, like. Well, and again, I think that, you know, he might be trying to establish some quote unquote swagger at the Browns. But the reality of the situation is they're still the Browns. And the NFL is such that, you know, if you haven't done anything, talking about it means nothing. Mm. I guess I'm struck by the number of people who are not merely, ooh, the Browns should be a lot better this year. Or, ooh, the Browns should make the playoffs this year. But talking about the Browns as Super Bowl, you know, uh, contenders. They're really Super Bowl contenders. Me. They're already giving Baker the MVP. Right? I mean, like he, you know, look, he was very impressive as a rookie last year. There's your gold star, Baker. Good for you. You're living up to the hype. You're not too short. You're not the second coming of Johnny Menzel. But you, you've got one good season under, you know, pro- prove to me it wasn't an accident, right? But did they even have a winning season? Uh, I'd have to look it up, but I don't I'll, think no, they, they did. No, they were, they were, you know, I feel the like they were like, off, it was like eight and eight or something. Like yeah. they didn't make the playoffs. Right. You know, for you now for the, you know, Browns, that's a, a huge, you know, huge step up and they should, you know, that's great. I don't know if I, I buy the idea. Cause again, they got to play you guys twice a year. Don't know what to think out of Cincinnati this year, but they're not exactly pushovers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you got Baltimore twice a year, and Baltimore was in the playoffs. And Baltimore is not a you know easy, right. not an easy team to play. No, uh, the AFC North is like real football. We're not a finesse, you know, division. Um, we, you know, we like to fight it out. And yeah, I don't know. We'll see how it goes. I've been really irritated with them since they've been all like, "Oh, the Browns are going to win the Super Bowl since they got Odell Beckham and all the other nonsense." And I'm like. They're still the Browns. Like, until they actually start winning a bunch of games, like, don't talk to me about it. And let's also observe, besides the uh, Odell Beckham Jr. giving his, was it was it GQ or somebody who did the interview, and he's like, he's griping, still griping about the Giants, and he's still fuming about them. And there's, you know, there's a part of it's like, hey, you got a new team now. Second of all, if you got bored in New York, how are you going to feel in Cleveland? Speaking of which, you have a new team now, and people who should keep our name out their mouth. Antonio Brown came out and after Ben Roethlisberger gave an interview last week saying that he wished he had not, you know, mentioned on his radio show that he told Le'Veon, or Le'Veon, that he told Antonio that he needed to go flat on that route instead mm-hmm. of going out. Um, and that was literally the entire criticism that was on the radio, by the way, that he said, you know, he wished he had not said that because it ruined a friendship. And then A.B., of course, being AB, went on social media and told everyone that they were never friends. He was only about the money. Which, okay. of course, contradicts years of Instagram posts 
by AB where he puts pictures of him and Ben Roethlisberger together and talking about how they're the best of friends and their stepbrothers and everything else. Mm-hmm. And I, so I think it's important to, to, like, as you said, move on. I don't think he's done that yet. Um, Le'Veon needs to also keep our name out of his mouth, just FYI. Uh, he suggested that, you know, we had really good thing there and we just let it go. That's what he said. We just let it go. Not like we didn't offer to pay him more money than you guys did. Um, so yes, like I, I'm done with them. I'm glad they're done. I'm so excited for the new season. I'm excited for James Connor. I'm excited for Juju Smith-Suster. Um, I'm certainly excited about seeing what Devin Bush can do for our defense and, because he's going to be the one who calls our defense. And that's been something that we really have missed because Shazier was the person who called our defense. And while we've had, obviously losing him was detrimental in so many ways, but one of the major ways was obviously losing him as, as a signal caller and getting other people up to speed on that just isn't, you know, it's not as easy as it looks. And apparently Devin is very bright and has picked up on it and is doing a good job with that as well. So I'm excited about that. Okay. Can I get a, do you have a record uh, prediction here? No. <laughs> uh-uh. All right. I want to see him play first. I mean, I, I have very high hopes for my Steelers this year. I would like to see them do something like, I mean, like 12 and four would be great, you know, 11 and five, but I always, you know, end up saying like nine and seven. Hmm. Oh, that's, that's cautious pessimism. That's, that's yes. my, usually my category there. Um, that's ironic, Mickey, because I'm, I'm, look, I feel like the Jets are in a considerably better place than they were last year. Um, although I'm not here, here's actually, here's, so I'm, I was not a fan of the Adam Gase hire. Mm. Um, when they announced the news, my eyes were bulging out of my head. Like I was, well, Adam Gase, really, um, that, uh, that, that I was not wowed with what he did in Miami. I know he's got this reputation as offensive guru, the exact kind of coach that Sam Darnold's supposed to have. Look, the die is cast. The management has made their choice. Let's see how he can do. Um, Todd Bowles, as much as I, you know, wanted to see things work out with him, and he had this great reputation as a defensive coordinator, not great in-game coaching decisions, management of timeouts, play calling was was really pedestrian at best for most of it. Yes, I realize Bowles was not playing the, was not uh, making the play calls, but like. Again, you are the head coach. That, that you know, if you're not going to fix it, who is? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think so. I think they'll make a, a a big step, and even that's without Le'Veon Bell. I'm high, cautiously optimistic, high hopes. <laughs> but uh, even us, we got uh, Ty Montgomery from the Packers. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was actually really good for a long stretch. Um, well, and I really do think that you shouldn't underestimate the Heinz Ward hire because. Not only, you know, obviously was a fabulous wide receiver, but what really made him great was he was a fantastic physical wide receiver, a good blocking wide receiver, and a teammate that everybody wanted to have. So he could bring a lot of good things to the Jets. Um, I'm not sure how many blocks the coach will make, but uh... teaching them. Okay, all right. Yeah. Oh my there, gosh! There people on Twitter who reacted as if the Jets had signed Heinz Ward to play. Oh, really? Which, by the way, you look after our first three receivers. I'm not opposed to that option. <laughs> right. At this point, they're like, yay, he should totally play. But no, I meant like he he's really, like I said, he's exceptional at that. He did a great job of mentoring and bringing up Antonio Brown, as a matter of fact. 
and many others, Antonio Holmes, um, a lot of people learned um, under Heinz Ward kind of in the Pittsburgh Steeler way of you're going to be a wide receiver, but you're also going to have to learn how to block. (laughs) So you're saying that if everybody learns the ways of Heinz Ward, they could have the same kind of good head on their shoulders that Antonio Brown and Santonio Holmes have. (laughs) Oh, you shut it. No, but they could have really good careers. Yes, I would be perfectly. I would be very happy with both of those. He can't uh, fix, you know, broken. Right. But, but we'll yes. wrap. We will wrap up shortly. But before we go on, who, who worries you in the AFC? Always the Patriots, but we open against them this year, which is great because then we can just get that one out of the way. Mm, yeah, it's, I think we play them week two or three. So we, we week two or three, and then like week six. So, but Jets. I mean, I think it would be dumb time. not to pay attention to Kansas City. Mm-hmm. I think um, because obviously they're, you know, they're Patrick Mahomes is amazing and they're building around him seemingly. Um, the Chargers always have, but they never scare me. I just never get too excited about them. I guess, I, yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm interested to see what you guys do. Mm-hmm. I'm not afraid of the Jets because, well, obviously, but <laughs> I am interested to see how y'all do. You look at them and like, wow, they're going to be really tough to play. In about two or three years. Um, <laughs> the, uh, but what about you? What What are you looking at and thinking? Well, I was going to say, actually, I'm, there's, I'm, I'm trying to like not echo the conventional wisdom. So there's a part of me that says, you know what? Maybe this is the year for the Chargers. Uh, Phil Rivers is in his, I believe, 34th NFL season. Uh, <laughs> like Philip Rivers was drafted the same year as Ben Roethlisberger and um, Eli Manning. Yeah, I mean, look, some, for some of these guys, you know, they're still playing for the money. Rivers is playing for a championship. He's not worried yep. about money. He's got Social Security. Well, he might need money. He does have 75 children. That's right. That's right. <laughs> the one-man population explosion. <laughs> um, it's, you know, it's kind of like Cromer- it's kind of like uh, Antonio Cromartie, but just, you know, with one with one wife. Um, <laughs> the, yeah, so my, my thinking is, is that, I, also it's worth noting, people ask, because I, you know, uh, there's a site called Turn on the Jets that has allowed me to, just rant every now and then when I feel like putting down all my thoughts. You and I talk about it a bit on, you know, Sundays on I'm Twitter. I'm so excited for you to be doing some sports writing and it talking is, like, about I, it. You know, it's fun. I was a sports editor for a year, and I, you know, would have been perfectly happy to do this, except apparently most sports writers live in poverty, it turns out. Um, yes. The yes. ESPN guys are making a good living. Everybody else is, you know. Uh, it's, it's a tough road to hoe, as yeah. you know. Um, so I went into the much more lucrative world of po- political journalism. Uh, <laughs> But anyway, so my thinking was, so I, the thing is worth noting, people say, oh, are you, Jim, do you want to get into a fantasy league? I'm not into fantasy football. One, because you end up caring about who scored the touchdown instead of, you know, the actual score. Two, I just don't have the mental real estate to really get into it. So I don't have, I feel like I, I hear about the Chargers like two or three times a year. You know, so they, they could be really good and I'm just not hearing about them very often. Um, most of the West Coast teams. We They're don't not get a bad. They've just never been able to put it all together. Yeah. Um, you I know, ton- like that happens sometimes with teams. Like you look mm-hmm. at the team, you're like, you're a solid team, but just haven't been able to like put it all together. Um, uh, so I, I listen to a lot of sports radio around here, which means I get an obsessive coverage of the Redskins. <laughs> and I hate to say this to one of our favorite occasional listeners, Liz, and certainly one of our Twitter interactors. Uh, I think the Redskins are going to be terrible this year. I think they're going to be just, you know, Case Keenum does not frighten anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
the best left tackle still sitting out, and they don't think he's ever going to sign. Didn't have anybody in their skill positions to begin with. Okay, correction. Um, Darius Geis could be good. Okay. Uh, Adrian Peterson, man, he can beat a defense with a But who's really good in the NFC right now? Who do you think is like, okay, we're going to watch them? Here's why I actually remember back when um, the Vikings traded for Kirk Cousins. Yes. And paid him roughly a hajillion bazillion dollars a year. Yes. I'm just sitting there thinking like, you know, the the Vikings two years ago were, were really good. But they're in a division that's got uh, the Bears, who made the playoffs. Trubisky appears to be coming along. You've got the Packers, who, uh, with Aaron Rodgers back, and obviously their most years going to be in the playoffs are very competitive. And the Lions are a team that exists. Um, <laughs> moving beyond. The entire, Can I just tell you that I think that Mitch Trubisky has the most Chicago name? Yes, exactly. For a quarterback he's, like he's a longshoreman who's, you know, in mm-hmm. the union or something like that. Exactly. He's too hot. Who's working at the docks on the weekend. Um, the, the entire NFC West looks tough. Uh, Seattle, uh, you know, can't can never count them out. Uh, mm-hmm. The Rams, obviously, returning. Although I, I think we're still kind of wondering just what the heck happened to them in the, in the Super Bowl. Yeah. Because they cut through everybody else like a hot knife through butter. And then all of a sudden, you know. Yeah, and I just wonder, too, if it might have been the stage. Like, they just weren't ready. But again, they also had a different schedule than the people that, you know, you play the Patriots, you're playing a real football team. Yeah. And if you're not ready, they will make you look stupid. Um, I had been ready to get on the the 49ers uh, bandwagon last year with Jimmy Garoppolo. And Mm. just to say, he he was, you know, that last half of the previous season, when he joined them, he was just playing lights out. And I was ready to say, ah, finally, Belichick screwed up or, or the Patriots screwed up. Right. They like Garoppolo. Was, was getting un, you know, uncomfortable with Jimmy Garoppolo. Jimmy Garoppolo really is living up to the hype. Um, and, you know, got injured very early last year, out for the year. Apparently, he's not looking super duper terrific this year. So I don't uh-uh. think the Niners are going to live up to that uh, hype. Uh, obviously, Saints, you know, one bad call away from being in the Super Bowl last year. Um, the Saints are very, you know, as far as the NFC goes, I think they're probably one of the more consistently good teams. It's like since Russell Wilson arrived in Seattle, I'd put them in that category. Um, and, you know, again, they're kind of all like the Chargers and that like they might be getting there and whatnot. But Drew Brees is different. He can get you there and get it yeah. done. In fact, if I had to pick a team in the NFC, I think I might pick the Saints. Um, I think I would predictable pick, but I think yeah. they're, they're just that good. I well, I think you know, I think it's probably going to be you know a Saint Seattle NFC Championship game. Um, and yeah, and was... by the way, Giants fans, save it, save it. <laughs> you can all call me and tell me all you want about the demon, and I will tell you to save it. Yeah, because. Uh, it's not, I, and honestly, notice that I don't even have Philly in this discussion. Uh, <laughs> is that a deliberate omission, or we just hadn't gotten around to him yet? Because I was, I was going down. My point was, I was originally building towards was that uh, the you know the, the Vikings traded for Cousins. They had this yep. three-year deal that you could be a really good team in the NFC and just never quite make it because there are five or six really good loaded mm-hmm. teams with good defenses and good skill position players and good lines and good quarterbacks. Uh, and so my seeing suspicion is that, look, NFC will be very, very tough. They'll beat each other up. Um, I, I guess I'll be safe and I'll predict the Chiefs to make the Super Bowl. Although I was, I wondered if last year was kind of like a, the magical season and there's a little bit of a 
reversion to the mean this year? Well, you know, I think that that's always possible. For one, it's kind of, you know, that people are getting more film on Patrick Mahomes. They're going to learn and study him more. That's one of the things you have as a benefit kind of coming into a situation Mm. where people haven't been watching you that much. They do have a lot more film. But, that's you know, I'm not taking away from his talent because they're very, very good. Obviously, I would prefer to see the Steelers in the Super Bowl. And so, therefore, I cannot possibly pick anyone in the AFC other than us. Now, having said that, um, you know, I think New England's going to be tough. I think Kansas City's going to be tough. I'd like to think that we're going to be tough, but I really don't know what we're going to look like. Um, I think I have a pretty good idea of what we're going to look like on offense, which is amazing. The problem is we weren't able to stop anybody on defense. And unfortunately for us, Chris Boswell could not kick a field goal last year. And we figured it out in the offseason, and it was like we would have won five more games if he had just made the field goals he was supposed to make. Yeah. And these were like under, you know, under 30 yards. Look, a, a good kicker is probably worth the money. Mm-hmm. So naturally the Jets had a Pro Bowl kicker and let him walk away in free agency. <laughs> so what Jeff about you? Like, who do you see? You see Kansas City in the Super Bowl? Yeah, um, I, I think that, as I said, Chargers are an outside shot. Uh, I think I like you guys most in the, uh, I, I used to call it the AFC Central show my show. Yes, my there you go. Uh, AFC North. Um, what do you think about Andrew Luck? I, my attitude was Andrew Luck had more than earned it. It's, you know, his, it's his life. Um, some people really mad about that. I was kind of surprised by it. I really have no idea why people feel like they have the right to be angry about it. This is a guy who suffered severe injuries, um, came back from multiple injuries from college on up. Like he has spent probably the last 12 years of his life in a continuous cycle of healthy, injured, rehab, rehab, healthy, injured, rehab, rehab. And I think at some point it probably takes a mental toll on you, Mm. not only a physical toll. Now, I think that he could probably be one of those players that maybe, you know, he takes a year off and his body heals um, 100% and he comes back and says, you know what, I do want to play some more. But players leave for a lot of different reasons. I wasn't nearly as surprised as everyone else was. Um, I knew that he had been healthy again, but I also knew he had gotten hurt. And it has to be a struggle to have that happen season after season. And, you know, he's got a he's got a baby on the way. And so, you know, you just don't know what's going on with the person. And I feel like he absolutely earned the right to leave and to do whatever he wants. And and I would say that pretty much about any of the players. Now, if it's a Steeler leaving and I don't care for it, I will say no. Um, but this is, you know, like I said, I, I was really I was really, really shocked at how people flipped out over it. Yeah. I mean, look, we've seen a lot of great NFL players end their careers earlier than you wanted to see them, you know, play, or, mm-hmm. you know, because of injuries. And I'm sure you can think off the top of your head a bunch of Steelers. I can think of a bunch of Jets. Oh, absolutely. Lane Corbett, yeah. Altoon, uh, Dennis Bird. You know, this this is part of the game. This is part of the you know, part of the risk. And yeah, it's tragedy. Yeah, it's it's heartbreaking. I can understand why if you're a Colts fan, why you're so deeply disappointed. But Look, for seven years, Andrew Luck gave you everything you could possibly want. You know, mm-hmm. let him walk away. Let him, you know, go off and live his life the way he wants. He doesn't owe you anything else anymore. Um, I think that's the weird part. The the people who were like, you know, that's weak. And he just, you know, this, that, and the other. And I'm like, 
he he's a grown ass man. He can do whatever he wants. How about that? He doesn't even have to tell you anything. He can just be like, I retired. Why? Because I feel like it. And you know who's done that to us? Barry Sanders did it to us. Calvin Johnson did it to us. Like, those were shocking retirements to me. This was not. You know, it is a... There there was a weird sense of entitlement from a lot of those fans. And the other thing also is that the the boo is at that uh, preseason game. Um, now the one observation, I think it was, uh, Jerry, I want to say it was Jerry on Twitter who said, um, the person who, who he, he didn't begrudge, um, who's the ESPN guy who re- reported it, who reports everything. Adam Schefter. Adam Schefter. He doesn't begrudge Schefter for reporting the story when he got it, right? That's mm-hmm. your reporter. That's your job, right? It's breaking news. It's huge news. It's one of the most genuinely shocking NFL stories to come down the pike in a long time. Schefter has to report that. Whoever leaked it to Schefter yeah. deprived Andrew Luck of the opportunity to tell yeah. his own teammates and for them to learn that way. And that, that is a little bit sad. If I were a team— But here's I guess my the, question. why They knew this was coming. Why didn't he address the team prior to the stupid game? That's what I'm wondering. Is that, that if you want to have any irks, any, any irritation with Luck, I think it probably is fair to say— you know, look, clearly this is not a decision you just suddenly, you know, you suddenly pulled something in practice or something mm-hmm. strange or went wrong. And, and that's, you know, no, clearly you've been thinking about this for a while. Mm-hmm. If you'd done it before free agency, we could have signed another quarterback in free agency. If you'd done it before the draft, we could have signed another quarterback in the draft. You know, that you've, you ended up really putting your team in a tough spot by making this decision several weeks into preseason. And I guess the other thing which you really want to get, you know, there were reports that saying you know, Andrew Luck's, you know, body has never felt better and, you know, he's ready for the next season and all that kind of stuff. Was he dishonest or did all this come on very rapidly as a result of, was it a calf injury or something else that he'd had? The ca- was it a calf or an ankle? Yeah. Um, again, I think that it, it may just be also a part of it being the mental exhaustion of having to go through the rehab process again. I mean, it's not easy, mm-hmm. and especially if you're a professional athlete. I mean, it's very rigorous because the team has you doing everything in your power to get you back on the field as quickly as possible. And, you know, and again, it just may have been one of those things where he was like, I don't want to do this anymore. And sometimes, you know, that happens. So it was, it was interesting to me. I didn't find it as shocking as everyone else did. I wasn't as like, Oh my God, I can't believe he's doing this. I've seen a lot of other retirements that bothered me more, I guess. I, for me personally, Heath Miller was devastating and he said that he wanted to retire healthy and you know, that's fair, but it still broke my heart. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. I think every, I think every fan has been there at one point or another. That's, you know, so Anyway, we have gone much longer than we usually do, but I think it's all been completely worthwhile, Mickey, as I've missed you, missed talking about these topics, and uh, now we are excited for NFL season to start. Um, Anything else our listeners should be looking for or keeping on on their radar screen or anything like that? Well, uh, you know, there's, I'm always keeping an eye out for new and interesting things that are coming out and on the, and down the pike, so to speak, for our listeners and, uh, and things for them to check out. I have been exceptionally pleased, as you know, with the Dave Chappelle uh, stand-up that is on Netflix, but I have also heard very good things about a Colin Quinn stand-up called um, Red State, Blue State that is on Netflix as well. So that is definitely something to keep in mind. And... I have been watching the new 
Beverly Hills 90210 reboot. And so that's something that we're definitely going to be talking about coming up. And of course, do not stick anything in your vaginas, ladies, um, until we get back, because we will be discussing some of the things over the last several months that apparently goop-inspired women have attempted to put in their hoo-hoos. So, yeah, there's some things coming up that we're going to be talking about in the next couple of weeks. Um, we will be on a more consistent schedule moving forward. Summer has been crazy but exciting and fun for both of us. Thanks so much for sticking with us, guys. You can always listen to us and find us at soundcloud.com forward slash Jim and Mickey show. You can find us on iTunes, Spreaker, and anywhere that you listen to your podcatchers. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook and become a fan at facebook.com forward slash the Jim, and, the, the Jim and Mickey show. And of course, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Bias Girl. He is at Jim Garrity, and we all like to use the hashtag TJAMS. That's T-J-A-M-S. And I'm Mickey White. He's Jim Garrity. Thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to the one, the only, Jim and Mickey Show. <laughs>